Tampa Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Need help, sir? Oh, uh, officer, hi. You need help? Uh, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. What do you got there? Uh, little pecans. I delivering pecans to my niece. And pecans? Syrup. Yeah, pecans. She makes the worst pecan pie you've ever tasted. I feel sorry for her husband, but and I feel sorry for the pecans too. <laughs> most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. I thought it was more important to be somebody out there than the damn failure I was in my own home. It was a terrible father. husband. You're my chance. I didn't deserve forgiveness. This is the last one. So help me God. This is the last one.
Tapia, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Turn it up. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our shows, check out NostalgicRadioandCars.com, where you can go back and listen to all of our 600 and really close to 700 shows. Good evening, Matthew. How are you to decide? I'm doing fantastic, Robert. How about yourself, sir? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. So, uh, anyway, we got a pretty good show for you, though. We got uh, part two with our friend, our good friend, Neil London. He'll be on here in a little bit shortly. So, in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some highlights as to what went down this past weekend. So, as you uh, probably know, we had um, my friend Bill Wendemann from Saratoga um, Automobile Museum up in uh, Saratoga, New York. And they do two auctions a year. They do the Saratoga Motor Car Auction. And they do the Naples Motor Car Auction. Now, <coughs> as I mentioned before, while I straighten out my buddy, Mr. Uh, Scooby-Doo over here, my, my mascot, Scooby-Doo, he's, lying, he's slacking. He's, he's laying over there. I'm going to have to straighten him out here in a second when the next song comes on. But anyway, so uh, as you all know, I'm a licensed independent car dealer, and I do appraisals and all that other good stuff, right? Well, I used to work for an auction company. Big shout out to my good friends, Mike and Kelly and everybody and Flo at uh, Hollywood Wheels Auction. Now, I learned a lot while I was there. One of the guys that I worked with was uh, Brent, Marty, and a couple other guys. Now, Brent was an auctioneer. I was the consignment, I guess you would call it, director, if you will. And my job was to deal with consigners, write descriptions, and then get them in the catalogs for prospective buyers to see. Bidders, if you will. Anyway, long and short of it is, uh, so I had a little bit of auction experience, right? And I know I'm going to get chewed out for this, but I used to always tell customers, never, never, never. First of all, if you're going to run a car through an auction, always run it through a reserve auction. Now, there's two schools of thought on it, but my philosophy has always been never drop the reserve. Why? Because if the car is really, really popular and a really cool piece, if somebody really wants that car and they're a high bidder and they really want it, and if there is real money on the car, they'll always walk up to you afterwards and try to buy the car. And, of course, if you watch Meekum or some of these other auctions uh, outside of Bear Jackson, who has a half a million dollar minimum before you can put a reserve on a car. But you'll always, like Meekum, you'll, everybody watches Meekum, you'll see it says, and the bid goes on. And then you have the grinders um, that are basically there to grind on you to say, come on, drop the reserve, drop the reserve, we'll do more. Well, sometimes. So you have to kind of understand the auction that you're at, and you got to understand um, numbers because run numbers are very important because if you're too early, there's not a lot of bidders there necessarily, and if you're too late, there's a lot of people who've already left. So there's a magic number, and I learned this a long time ago when I used to buy and sell cars at Mannheim Auto Auction that if you had bad numbers, your car wasn't going to bring any money because car dealers, as a rule, are lazy. Like a lot of people in business are lazy. The very, very successful guys, are they go at it. And, and that's another story for another day. But at any rate, so um, we ran a car through the auction this past weekend. We ran a 73 or 83 911 Porsche through there. And we had what I would consider pretty decent numbers. My friend ran his McLaren through there. He was about uh, seven or eight numbers behind me. So we had a good time slot. 
and the crowd was good. And it was held in Naples at the Ultimate Garage down in Naples, Florida, right behind the Porsche dealership, of all things, right? So nonetheless, so the car comes up, right? And uh, we're on the block. And I'm driving. I got to drive the car, okay? So, which was kind of cool because it has a real tricky little clutch and a real sensitive clutch, and I didn't want one of these um, drivers to get in and then stall it, and that would look pretty stupid. And uh, so I figured I would do it. At any rate, so the car's bidding, but up, but up, but up, but up, and it's getting up there. And then the guy comes in relatively early in the bid and says, "Look, you know, if we drop the reserve, you know, um, you know, it'll it'll take off." Well, there's two schools of thought on that. And here's my experiences. I've always been on, now when I worked Mannheim, run-of-the-mill cars on both sides of the auction. I bought and I've sold. And uh, car dealers, you have to understand who your bidders are. A car dealer, his mindset is, unless he absolutely has to have that car because he's got a buyer for it, if I don't get this one, I'll get the next one. If I don't get the next one, I get the one after that. If I don't get the one after that, yeah, I'll go empty and I'll just be back next week. That's a car dealer's mindset when he's buying inventory for his yard, unless his yard, thinking salvage yard, his dealership, unless he has a specific car for a specific customer, or he's just madly in love with the car himself. So, given the fact that the car got close to the reserve. The grinders were on me, and I kept saying, no, let's just let it go. Let's, let's go. Let's see where it goes. So he comes back to me again. I'm in the driver's seat, and I could kind of see what's going on in the audience. You don't want to make it too obvious, but, you know, you, you can. And this was a stunning car. It was uh, basically, the car was originally pewter, but then painted Mexico blue. But we jokingly, jokingly, affectionately referred to it as Viagra blue. And, then, in fact, I even had a license plate frame on it that said the Viagra missile because Mexico blue or grabber blue for all you four guys looks like Viagra blue, so that little blue pill, right? And uh, so that's how it was actually announced going on the block. So everybody got a kick out of that. So you can see there was a little sense of humor involved. But at looking around, scoping out the, the auction ahead of time, I saw that there was a lot of dealers that were selling cars, and I saw there was a lot of dealers that were buying cars. And I saw a handful of retail people, okay? So, but when you're selling a car at an auction, you need to stand by your car. And the reason you stand by your car is because if there are any prospective buyers, you're there so you can answer any questions and you can, you know, pique their interest a little bit, you know, tell them a little bit some of the details and go on and on and on, you know, like whether the car has a, you know, had modification, whether it was lowered, whether it had sport exhaust on it, whether it was, had a rebuilt engine in it, whether, you know, things like that, um, you know, special seat, special trim, special whatever. And that's very, very important because the devil's in the details. Cannot overemphasize that. Okay. And then the most important thing you can do is make sure that car looks as frontline, new car ready as possible. So I had the target top off. I had the uh, paint was beautiful, stunning. And it was, it really, really did have a nice paint job. 20 year old paint job. And it looked very, very good, I might add. Clear coat was great, everything. And, um, Car was lowered. I mean, the car had a good attitude. So it gets up to the point where the guy goes, "Look, we're we got this much money on it. Um, why don't you drop the word? If you drop the reserve, it'll go on." So I'm looking around and I'm thinking, "Okay, he's struggling at this number. He's trying to get another couple thousand dollars on it. He's got this number right now, and it's kind of like a bird in the bush is worth two in the bush, or a bird in the." Tree is worth two in the bush. I think. I thought like it was bird, a bird in the no, hand. Bird in the hand. That's worth two yeah. in the bush. Right. Bird in hand is worth two in the bush. Okay. So I'm thinking. All right. So, but intuitively, I thought. Okay. There's probably since the majority of the people there were dealers, and of course I scoped out the place area ahead of time anyway, and I thought there was a handful of retails. Um, I thought. All right. I better go with this. So I said, drop the reserve. And then of course it's the reserve is off. Okay. Guess what it does? Boom. It hammered it at that number. 
Well, I knew that was going to happen, but I could. that was a number that I could have lived with, okay? So where I'm going with this whole thing is I actually went against my philosophy, which is never drop the reserve. But then again, if we were at Meekum or if we were at Barrett, well, Barrett doesn't do it, but if we were at some Russo or some of the bigger auctions and you have a good uh, audience of retail you know, buyers like yourself, not dealers, then you could do that because then the bid's going to go on. But if you've got a dealer on the car and you don't always know that because you don't always know who the bidders are, but you can actually see that some of the people that the, the bidders were in the front. So it was kind of an intuitive thing, and I went with it, and it proved I proved it proved to be right. Lately, in the last you know couple of months, I've been going on my own intuition, and, and you know that way if you go on your own intuition, you make a decision. The only person you have to blame if it's not right is yourself. But I will tell you that probably. Eight out of ten times, if you go on your own intuition, this is coming from experience, it's probably the best move you can make because you you made your decision, you live with it. Most of the time, eight out of ten times, it'll probably be the best decision you make. If you you know, depending on what the decision is, of course, you know. And um, so anyway, it worked out real well. So we had a lot of fun there, and uh, a couple of my friends sold some of the cars. Some of them didn't because uh, the numbers were kind of you know a little bit high. But you know, it what an auction. And Mike will coach you. This is my good friend Mike uh, Flynn with uh, Hollywood Wheels. He'll tell you that you know generally if you got a good auction and cars sell. If you have a, when I say good auction, good exposure, a good audience, a good group of buyers, a good group of sellers, decent inventory, well advertised, well marketed, it's the market. Okay. Now, you know, keep in mind on Meekum, on TV, you know, primetime, Bear Jackson, primetime, some of the other TV shows, primetime, there's a lot of hoopla in there. And frankly, what happens a lot of times in auctions is you don't always know whether there's real money on the car. Because if you have a reserve, so let's just say my reserve was $50,000, let's say. They could run that car up to $49,999 within the dollar of it, theoretically, okay? And uh, so you might, there, a bid might go to 45000 on a $50,000 reserve. You think that's real money, but really the real money on the car was back at thirty-eight or thirty-nine. okay? So... But the auction's job is to push it and try to get as much on there. And you've got, generally as a rule, three minutes when a car rolls across a block. Okay? That's what they're supposed to do. I can tell, and I want to thank, my hand goes out to Brent and Marty, and, and Bill was the reader on the block, and uh, Bill and, and the other Bill. And uh, so we have Bill W. and Bill um, Bill uh, uh, R., I'll say. Uh, Anyway, they did a really good job because they really worked the car. They worked the audience. In fact, almost all the cars that went through there, they worked the audience. That was very, very good. I look forward to it. I mean, that was, it was a well-organized auction, well-structured, and had a good team of people there, the auction team themselves. Okay, It was laid out very well, um, hands-off, and I'm, I'm probably definitely going to go back to next year. And I might try to take a car, too, if I can get something that uh, I think I'll do okay with. But... There was a couple of really exciting cars there. There was one car in particular that we talked about briefly, and that was that 67 um, Ferrari 330 GTC with a million-dollar reserve. It went to 825, and I get it, you know. And then there was a GT3 RS Porsche. There was a couple of Lamborghinis, a beautiful, a stunning, stunning Ferrari F488 with uh, some really tricks options on it 63 corvette split window and it bid well over 100 but it was an automatic and uh automatics are 
for all practical purposes, the kiss of death. Okay, you just most people today want stick shifts. There was a uh, real nice. Uh, my friend's uh, eighty nine McLaren. Uh, what color was that? That was British Racing Green, one of one in that particular color, and one of two hundred forty that for that production year. Uh, seven a uh, two thousand four nine eleven uh, two thousand Porsche nine eleven did okay did twenty five I guess somewhere around that range but it was a no sell because it was a thirty thousand dollar reserve on it Mercedes six point nine a really really cool Jensen Interceptor convertible and my friend was joking hey you got some money now you should buy that and I said well I like that car but you know the problem is is it's going to bring retail and you know and and the car business. As we always say, the money's in the buy, okay? So my money's made in buying, not selling. So you got to buy right in order to sell right. So, you know, if you if you paid 50 and a car did 48, you, you went in the hole plus the 8%, you know? 8% for the seller if it's a reserve, 4% no reserve. And the buyers always pay 10%. Some auctions, they pay 12%. So you have to kind of know the game. But you need before you buy and sell or do anything in an auction, and I don't care if it's Maycomb, I don't care if it's Russo, I don't care if it's Barrett, wherever. You need to do your homework and learn the game. Watch the game. Can you make money at it? Yeah, if you buy the right car and at the right auction and get the right numbers. If not, well, you know, the car's not going to do very well. At Maycomb, 4,000 cars. So there are some good buys out there, but prime time, everything was overinflated. That's just the way it is. So you got to be real careful, you know. Um, and the cream of the crop dealers are the ones that always get prime time. You know, the guys that bring a lot of cars there. And the other thing you got to take in consideration is a car. This is why I say it's important to hopefully, if, if you're a seller, be there with your car. If you're a buyer, talk to the owner. Because at least the owner, you know, he'll give you the description of full details on the car if he's forthright and honest. And uh, But if you're buying something, with because at an auction, a lot of times you don't have a chance to check it out. And uh, so you don't know what you're buying. And then when you get home, like my friend bought this GTO, and the shifter's messed up, the windshield wiper switches and motor's all messed up. And it's just, you know, they went to all the extremes and made the car look really, really, really nice. But everything's sloppy because it was a rush to get it across the block because their attitude was, ah, screw it. You know, once it goes across the block and the guy buys it, you own it. The other thing you got to watch out for is VIN numbers. And I'll give you another example. A friend of mine bought a car. And on the paperwork, it says one year. The VIN number on the title says another year. The production number, the VIN number, and this is very often with European cars, okay, exotics and stuff like that. you got to watch those. And the VIN number sequence is another year. So we got a car that says that it was sold as a 57, and the date on the title is 1965, and they never made that card 65. It was 64, early 64. But the serial number basically says, the sequence of serial number, this car is a 61. So, well, the buyer didn't catch that. So the buyer gives old Robert a call. Old Robert goes over there and starts trying to figure this whole mess out. He can't even find the VIN number on the car. And uh, sure enough, some cars are stamped on the frame. Not always, sometimes. This particular case, it was stamped on the shock tower, which is part of the 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 frame section. Okay, there was tags that were or plates that are affixed to the body. Well, those can be reproduced, and um, and yes, numbers can be stamped. Okay, or cut off another cars. I mean, you really have to do your homework, especially when you're getting into these cars that are in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and even more so, millions and millions of dollars. But anyway, I've rambled on long enough, so I think time. Uh, Matt's going to go ahead and play us a song. Now, I played the, the the movie trailer to The Mule, which was a Clint Eastwood movie, 
And, Toby and a very Ke- good one at that. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see it yet, but Toby Keith wrote the uh, song in there, Don't Let the Old Man In. So that was, I kind of edited that at the end. But unfortunately, Toby Keith passed away here recently, within the last 24 hours, I guess. And so we're going to play cancer. Toby Yeah, stomach cancer. Yeah. So we're going to play a song because I like Toby Keith. Um, the, the, my son and I started listening to him and Brad Paisley and Dirk Bentley and Alan Jackson all in the early 2000s when I, they had some pretty decent country I never music. had you guys pegged these country guys on the time I've known you and your son. Oh, yeah. Well, I listened to anything but rap crap. All right. Okay. So all right. Anyway, so I'm, we're going to play this for uh, Keith. And uh, I like the song. This goes out to Keith, and uh, it's also my son, Bobby. But anyway, and then we're going to call our guest and get our guest on the phone. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. About your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about the troubles you've been having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the dimples on your chin, the polish on your toes and the run in your holes, and God knows we're gonna talk about your clothes. You know talking about you makes me smile. But every once in a while, I wanna talk about me, wanna talk about I, wanna talk about number one. Oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 you believe. But occasionally, I wanna talk about me. about your dreams and we talk about your schemes, your high school team and your moisturizing cream. We talk about your nana up in Muncie, Indiana. We talk about your grandma down in Alabama. We talk about you guys of every shape and size, the ones that you despise and the ones you idolize. We talk about your heart, about your brains and your smarts and your medical charts and when you start. You know talking about you makes me grin. But every now and then, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I. Talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 you believe. Hey, this is comedian, author, and most importantly, vintage race car driver Adam Carolla telling you I love nostalgic radio and cars. Okay, we're back, and you tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. It's time to introduce our alumni guest now. Back from South Florida on the Eastern Seaboard, uh, I'm delighted to welcome back Neil London. Neil, how are you? How are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm doing good. I'm doing okay. How about you? It's um, a little cool and breezy here in South Florida, but... It's refreshing. <laughs> well, you know what? We need to take advantage of that while we can because in about three, four months, it's not going to be so pleasant. Well, so, we, we know it's not going to snow, that's for sure. Yeah, you know what? Up where I live, up you know, up in the, in the hills here a little bit, uh, I was kind of hoping for snow. I'd like to see snow once in a while. In fact, if I had my way, I'd be up in the Carolinas, but there's not a lot of snow around. But anyway, aside from that, we uh, the last time we left off, we just got to start talking about the Fillmore East. So 
I'm going to let you, I'm going to hand it off to you there, do what they call in the car business, a TO, a turnover. And then uh, you can tell us a little bit about your experiences at the Fillmore and some of the people you ran across in, uh, back in the day. It really was a remarkable period of time. I'm talking about 1969 through the, through the early 70s. And um, I was in New York, New York in most of my life. Went in Brooklyn, raised on Long Island, moved into Manhattan when I was 18. And, you know, it was a musician in town with a local 802 union musician doing everything from club dates to some studio work, mitzvahs, weddings, anything I could play. Because I found the New York musicians were amazing. And we found many of the session players on the weekends just to earn good dollars actually playing, you know, catered events, family events, corporate events, etc. But at the time... My wife got a job with Bill Graham. She was managing the Fillmore East, and not just the Fillmore East, but Bill Graham had a talent agency called the Millard Agency. And Mary ran that office. It was upstairs from the Fillmore East on 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. If you know New York at all, it's a beautiful area. It's very funky. It's hippies at the time. Very counterculture. Still to this day, it's the East Village. And uh, at the time, I mean, sadly enough, eventually the Fillmore closed and became um, a strange little disco for a while. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about. What I found amazing, because I had full access at the time due to my wife being uh, employed by Bill, the learning experience that Bill brought to the music listening audience was really remarkable. He coupled groups like Miles Davis and Santana, the Grateful Dead and Bach organ recitals. He really was very consciously introducing his audience to new listening music. All with intention. Really was amazing. So I found it really great. One of the most fascinating parts of it to me, aside from just access to the facility, was to see the, the inner workings of what the shows really were about. And I used to love hanging in the, the back of the light booth where you'd have guys from the Joe's Lights or the Pig Light Show. And these are the guys that were creating these incredible optics behind the bands. If you ever went to the Fillmore and you see kaleidoscope images and you know just the most amazing like liquid amoebas moving across the stage, it was this handful of really organic, light optical wizards. These guys were amazing. Even, even though I would be fascinated with what was on stage, there was something about being up in the booth, creating the images that were overlaid on top of the bands. Now, you got to remember, this is way before digital. So everything we did was very organic. I'll give you an example. We had these like 12, 18 inch glass dishes and we put them on top of overhead projectors and then we'd put some liquid in and then we'd squeeze in some red dye, some blue dye, some green dye. And then we'd throw an Alka-Seltzer into it and the whole thing would explode. Huh. And it was, it was being projected live on the bands. It was like really amazing. Of course, Bill had the quintessential taste and respect 
every musician that came to that, that facility. It really was remarkable because most club owners, forgive my French, they sucked. They looked for to pay you $10 if they could get away with it. Bill was just a real mensch, if you would say. So, you know, my, so my time in New York and with the Fillmore, with Mary, was, was the height of this period, 69 to 73. I can't even remember when the Fillmore actually closed. But um, those were remarkable years. I mean, you got to remember, also at that time, you had things like Ari Krishna's chanting at the airports as you got off a plane. So it was, it was a very strange flower children time, peacenik time, hippie time, and not everybody liked us. <laughs> if you had long hair, you know, you were a target. Well, so how are you doing over there? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I'm still kind of a long hair by some by stretch of the imagination there. But at any rate, well, all right, so what about some of the people that you, uh, uh, musicians that came through the door there? Did you get a chance to talk to any oh, of them, yeah. interact any of them? Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Miles Davis, Santana, Grateful Dead. I mean, it was amazing. Leon Russell was, was memorable. I, mean, I don't even remember who he was playing with at the time. But the, the crossover between rock and jazz and, and Latin stuff, as Santana came in and became really popular, he, he, he breached this, this new barrier of, of Latino music, which was so powerful. The, the extra per, percussions were something that the typical rock audience is not used to, in my opinion. One of the most amazing concerts I saw there was, I believe it was Virgil Fox, did a like a three hour Bach organ recital on a on a pipe organ that they set up on center stage. And I tell you, it just the whole entire audience that was normally kinda rowdy although respectful was totally quiet for this this <laughs> for that, that organ recital. And it was it was way before there was like I think an album came out called Switched on Bach which was remarkable. But this was just somebody else just like scatting away on this incredible organ. And, you know, I guess the other musicians, I can't think of anybody in particular. I did remember sitting down and playing and while the groups rehearsed once in a while. They'd invite me to hang out and be on stage. Ten years afterwards, the group, I mean, like... Oh, wow, Alvin Lee, yeah. Yeah, I mean... And, and some of the groups, I mean, the, the musicians were obscure sometimes. You had a, you had a duo there of, um, what the hell was his name? Keyboard player. Frosty was the drummer. Al Cooper. I mean, like a duo. Hammond Organ and drummer. That, like, I can't even remember the name of the album. Season of the Witch is one of their big songs. Okay, yeah, Season of the Witch. Well, this that's... Was, okay. was amazing. And you know, and and the music was was changing though. You had now what was coming in was like blood, sweat, and tears, and Chicago horn groups coming in. You know, not that the rock audience was terribly into you know sax players playing riffs, but huh. um, I liked it because I grew up as a musician. We looked to play music. Period. When you mentioned uh, Seasons of the Witch, I think wasn't that a Donovan song? I think originally it was. You should hear the Al Cooper Frosty version of that. 
we'll have to we'll have to play that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Bill Graham. What was he like? Did you get a chance to interact with him, hang out with him a little bit? What was he like? Not not much actually. Bill appeared to be austere but friendly. He had you could tell he was a really open, like a heart chakra. But his mind mind was like really in tune to be in the present. But but doing something. He was he was never just hanging out. Okay. He was he was he was in process all time, and you can tell the creativity was just that switch was on, and for the benefit. Honestly, like I said before, it was for the benefit of his audience. What came first, I mean, he, Fillmore East or Fillmore West? I don't even know. I mean, I grew up Fillmore Fillmore East was what I. I grew up with. I would only imagine Fillmore, Fillmore West uh-huh. probably was the start of it all. I mean, I, I guess it's an easy Google lookup. Yeah, that's You true. guys are on the computer there. <laughs> Google Fillmore. What, what year did they start? I mean, his theory, I don't even use her, but I would imagine it came out of the Haight-Ashbury years. Yeah, well, Fillmore. Yeah, it was it was wasn't exactly in that district, that part of San Francisco, because that's kind of where I grew up, uh, right. north of the Bay Area. But let me ask you this: So, what were the musicians like? So, in other words, when the musicians would come and go, were the music like today? It's like they're they kind of like want to duck in, duck out. What were the musicians like back in those days? Like you, you talked about ten years after Alvin Lee, and the, did they were they did they kind of hang out and talk to you a little bit? Well, uh, did they yeah. respond to the get to their fans or anything like that, or did they just basically? Come play and then split. You know, the fans. If if you're the talent, I can only equate this to a, a very strange parallel. Okay. If you ever work in the in the resort travel or a hotel or a hospitality business, and say you were behind the front desk, the guests of that hotel, the patrons, the public, are a very ugly thing. They come to the guest. They come and they just they want they want they want they want. The musicians were. I don't think they were coddled like they are today because I think today, you know, they write in all these incredible writers. I mean, I don't know what kind of chocolate bars, you know, Aerosmith wants backstage, but they do want a specific water, beverage, or Red Bull. I think we were way before that in many regards when it came to the rock business. What I do remember... Well, and something that stood out years later, because years later, if you remember, we're talking about late 60s, early 70s. Something happened in the late 70s prior to the time we were thinking about something that they were going to call MTV. Oh, yes. And, oh, my God. So what happens now, musicians and bands, they needed videos. And no one knew where they were going to get the money from because the budgets were all allocated from the record companies the year before. And all of a sudden, I mean, this is something that took, I'm not kidding, like three to four years for the artist, the artist management, the record labels to figure out how to pay for these new new tools, the music videos. Mm-hmm. And between 79 and 81, 82... MTV comes up, VH1 comes up. There isn't one group that's launching a record that doesn't have a music video. And the contracts to do them, they usually would, um, they would talk about, let's do three for this album. And some of the, some of the stuff that comes to mind is like 
Hall and Oates, when they came out with H2O, they did Family Man, uh, One on One, and whatever the third one was, I can't remember. So it was, it always became a requirement. If you were in the music business, you had to produce music videos. And, and videos were not cheap compared to going into an, into an audio recording studio. I can remember at the time, I could go into a 64-track audio studio, all the bells and whistles. I'd pay less than $7,500 an hour. If I had to go to a comparable video studio, I was paying 800 to 2000 an hour. Holy moly. Back then? Yeah. Yeah, back then, 1980 to 85. And video, it became the new tool, but it was very expensive. And, and the record labels at the time, because I was in some of these meetings, they would define the artist as a, a new artist, an established artist, or a superstar. And when someone like uh, Michael Jackson wanted a video done, or Diana Ross, they had a couple hundred thousand to deal with it. When, it, when an, an underdeveloped artist came along, the budgets were like six to twelve thousand dollars for a video. You can imagine. And we did some at that budget level. There was a great video that became really famous. It was called "The Message" by Grandmaster Flash, and it was one of the first rap songs that the industry got a hold of, and they finally understood that these guys were like a talking telegraph. And the guy talked about the girl getting her arm caught off at the subway, and they took her to the hospital, and they sold her arm on again. Remarkable music video. My studio did that video. One camera, Spanish Harlem, Ikigami 79D with a Putinon lens, and the whole group sat on a stoop and rapped that song to a click track. And you know what? They became famous. They hosted the first American Video Artist Awards because the producers of the Grammy saw that video in my post-production studio on 49th Street point here. So, like, the, that period of time, rock and roll, 1969, 1972, by the time this became Music Videoville, and I guess it kind of started, probably everybody remembers Tony Basil, Ricky, Ricky, you're so fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't even think there was one dissolved in that video. It was all cuts. And imagine we finally had a digital effects machine in 85. And if you look at that Grandmaster Flash, the message video, you'll see that for the first time ever, these digital effects used. And the other, the other video we worked on at the same exact time was a, a record called Raining Men by Paul Schaefer. Oh, if you really? look at that, oh man, then that song was a dance hit. It went off the chart. And originally it was two, group, it was two girls called Two Tons of Fun, and they renamed them the Weather Girls for that song. And uh, that, was, that was done the same exact time, the, the same DVE machine that we used on the message you could see the same type of cheesy digital effects in the Weather Girls video. It's Raining Men. And from there, you know, everything moved forward. You know, I don't know if many people realize that, but anyone in the music business in our age group 
we came up through the digital age. Everything was analog when we came in. Even the echo chambers and, and the, the reverbs and the effects that we were using. And I remember leaning on a vinyl in a post-production studio just to slow it down and make a wah-wah effect. Oh, wow. Imagine that. So and then by 84, ABC Television combined the first digital interface into broadcast television. And it was called the Dubner Machine, created by Harvey Dubner for ABC Television for the 84 Olympics. And it was there. This was remarkable because, I mean, I was playing with electronics since I was 10 years old. And now all of a sudden, remember when you looked at the Olympics, you saw an athlete's name came up on the screen and the, the flag of their country. However, before 84, there was no way of storing that information. So we needed a Chiron operator to type in the athlete's name every time. And we used to have to scramble to find the right flag and put it on an overhead projector to put it next to their name every time. <laughs> so when Harvey Dubner created this machine, we were able to store all 200 athletes' names, all 80 countries' flags, and the Chiron operator, all they had to do was hit one button, and up came the flag, the name, and la-da-da-da-da. <laughs> wow. Was, so we, we you're, you're, I mean, I'm a little older than you, I think, Robert, but, yeah. but I think you understood that transitional period of time when we were playing guitars through regular amplifiers, and thanks, by the way, for that photo of the, the custom rolled and pleated amplifier. That was really cool. <laughs> oh, at the and, Guitar Expo. Yeah, I figured you... Because you mentioned it on the show last week, you know, if it custom, and those were cool. They were expensive. They were. Well, at the time, I got mine, it was like 600 bucks, but it was a 200-watt head yep. on top of 215, and it was rolled and pleated in beautiful black Norgahyde. <laughs> yeah, no, but they're cool, and they're, and they're very collectible today. And you know, and then they made uh, they made a uh, what, what, the one you showed me was like a sparkly one. Yeah, with yeah, glitter. Yeah, yeah, the metal flake stuff in it. Cool the metal flake. Right? So yeah, so we came up through the al alchemy of organic music into the digital age. Where even today, I mean, the ten year old kids that I see on the street, they're shooting videos and they're editing videos on their iPhones. And I'm in broadcast television. Me and my editor, we keep wondering when we'll be out of business. Well, it's you're, you're right. I mean, it's like I used to carry a 35 millimeter, or this or that, all this stuff. Today, I just carry a, a a smartphone, and I can do just about anything I want. And then, like you said, there's programs you download it, and but these kids are so sophisticated today; they know how to do all this stuff, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, just look at YouTube. And and some of these other um, formats that are out there, these platforms, you anybody could be uh, a singer, a celebrity. Uh, you know, you get the right type of following, you're you're a sensation overnight. It's amazing, and you know, like no matter how any of us ever planned for success, it's really the, the listening public that makes something work. Yes, you know? and that's. And we can't get away from that. No matter how great and how well-dressed the A&R guys really are, or how many of them are carrying little 8-millimeter eight, eight PPKs in their stocks. <laughs> it's like, you know, the record industry, 
had always something left to be desired because you couldn't see what was going on. It was it was an illusionary product. It was a recording somewhere, and that's why eventually in the in the eighties I switched to television because number one, television cost so much more to produce that we didn't want to waste anybody's time. In a, in a, in a recording, if we, we had a band of recordings, a group, it didn't matter. We'd smoke another joint, order some sandwiches, and we'd be there another six hours. <laughs> it, it, didn't, it, it didn't cost a hell of a lot more to do that, you know? Right. But, but in a TV, you take a break to go to the bathroom and get a cup of coffee, it could cost you $1,000. So, at any rate. Anyway, I enjoy talking to you guys. I, I'm, I'm sure you're listening to the audience board with my little rap. Today I have a little recording studio built into my, my apartment here in, uh, in the Palm Beach area. I have a full set of Pearl drums set up with about six, uh, six great Zildjian speak, uh, cymbals. cymbals. I have a range of guitars, and I'm using an old... You remember the, the Fender Concert Amp? The Concert uh, Amp came out, it came out before the Super Reverb. Oh, okay. It, so was, it, was, it was four tens. And... What, and it's like 120 watts, four tens. This thing has so much balls that, that I actually looked. I looked for one for a while to go back, and I bought. I bought like a reissue, uh-huh. and that's what I, so I do guitar on that. I got a set of uh, JBL and CSC's, uh, whatever it's QSC speakers, with a really nice board. The one thing I'm looking for is a better bass amp at this point in time. <laughs> I'm using a shitty little Fender bass now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, hey, we got a few minutes left. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Supercar Week. Tell us how that came to fruition and what that's yeah. all about. So it's a really interesting. Because of my background in television and video, I became the agency for a couple of young guys that wanted to want Ferraris and Lambos in everybody's space. So we started to do these little, little shows with... We started with like six guys, three Lambos, three Ferraris. Then it grew to 15 cars, then 30 cars. And then they asked me, say, you know, the mayor, can we get can we get the main street on the waterfront? I went to the mayor and they said, yeah, let's try it. So eventually we started producing these really supercar shows on the West Palm Beach waterfront, right on the intercoastal. And they were a big hit, by the way. However, the two young guys that were my clients were young and they didn't appreciate uh, how to build relationships and business. And honestly, they bounced a lot of checks. Oh. They didn't pay people. They said, you know, toughs, sue me, you know, walk the other direction. And they wound up being just really punky kids. One guy moved back to New York. The other guy moved to Miami. The mayor put me in and said, we liked the concept. We just didn't like those little criminals. <laughs> so if you would take it over, we'll help you do it. So at the end of 2010, myself and a, a very dear partner who since passed away, Tim Bird, the Birdman, who is a, a huge radio personality, by the way. If you look up Tim Bird, the Birdman, yeah. on, on air in New York, WNBC with Imus and Howard Stern, oh, wow. we, became good, we became great friends down here when he was, he was on air, drive time to Clear Channel. So the, the mayor at that time said, Neil, Tim, if you want to take this show over, it's yours. And since they owed me about 50 grand, I said, well, 
it's the only way I might break my money back. <laughs> so we did. We took it over. First year, um, 150 cars, 15,000 people. We're now 14 years later, even though we had a lot of rain this year in January, we generally now have over 1,000 cars to full mile of the waterfront, and between 50 and 70,000 people show up for this. Holy moly. It is, it is a, it's a remarkable family event. It's free to the public, and we promote it that way. None of us get paid. We do it as a, a community action group to stimulate the local economy here. And it's sponsorship-supported. All the brands, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Aston Martin, Jaguar, Range Rover, Mercedes, BMW, Rolls-Royce, they all contribute to help us pay for this event. It started as a one-day show, but it took so much to do that show. The next year, we grew it into a nine-day series of auto enthusiast events. And you can go to supercarweek.com, and if you do a backslash details, you can read the story in a very brief one webpage uh, synopsis. This year, uh, we're very happy to be part of it for our 14th year. We do events in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Jupiter, Boca Raton, Delray, Wellington, and then any other place we could. And when we did one, the Lake Worth, we did events this year. And we do it throughout the county so that we can stimulate interest during that week for a big grand finale on the West Palm Beach waterfront. And it's working. Like I said, it's, it's, we take pride in it. We just, we just put ourselves into it. We dedicate ourselves. None of us get paid. We just, we just like, it's a community action group, like I said. So Supercar Week, as it comes around every year, and I hope maybe you'll come down and you'll do a broadcast yes. from it next year. Yeah, we uh, can do that. You, it's amazing. I mean, it's, I mean to see 50,000 people show up to look at cars, all ages. I mean, the, the most amazing thing is to watch a five- or six-year-old kid, boy or girl, look up at their mom or dad and go, wow, look at that. Because they're seeing something that they've never seen before. And at that point, it could be an old 57 Chevy that the dad owned, you know, when he was in high school. It could be a new Pagani. It could be, you know, these Bugattis are worth $10 million now. So it's, it's something for everybody. You take a lot of pride in it. There are a lot of car shows in Florida. South Florida is, it is super car central. You can't go a block without seeing a Ferrari or a Lamborghini here. And people ask me all the time, well, if you could have any car, you produce Supercar Week Big Shot. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> so me, before I would spend a half a million dollars on a, on a car, personally, I'd rather send 10 kids to art college. I, I have a totally different view of this. I'd never spend a half a million dollars on a vehicle. And I have many friends that have 10 of them. You know, I mean, me, my personal driver, you would crack up because I don't know if you know this character and without to mention, they call me the Columbo of the supercar world. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I pull up, it could be the chairman of any brand, you name the brand, Rolls Royce, Ferrari, Lamborghini. 
I grew up in a 97 Porsche Boxster that I just love that car. It's my daily driver. And I just, I bought it eight years ago. The only thing I've ever done was I had to replace the water pump. It's like an amazing car. So I like cars because of their style and their beauty. I really, I'm not one of these, uh, we call gearheads that really get what cars are about and they like what's under the hood. Me, I'm very optically oriented. Like I said, I'm a TV producer. I like shooting them, coming down the street, on a track. They're just beautiful objects of art. On that note, we're going to have to close with that. So real quick, one more time, Neil, tell everybody how they can find out about Super Week. Supercar Week. Supercar Week. Our slogan is the art and technology of speed and design. And please go to supercarweek.com. Check us out. We're about to update it with the 2025 date. And if you're anywhere near South Florida, it's a free event. Just come on over. You're just it. Super. Well, Neil, thank you a bunch. I will definitely put that on my calendar, and I will uh, talk to you here in the future, and I will definitely attend one of the uh, Supercar Week events. And uh, thank you for being a guest on our radio show for part two. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Robert. All right. Take care. Thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Wedding Cars. Again, my special guest, Neil London, with Supercar Week and just some amazing stories. Pretty cool. Hey, I want you guys to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com. Don't forget to check out Nostalgic Wedding Cars. There's a lot of car shows going on, a lot of stuff coming up here in the future. Uh, Amelia Island is coming up in a couple weeks. Yours truly will be at the Works Reunion, Porsche Works Reunion. In the meantime, I want to see you out in the car, out in the streets, driving around, having a good time. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.